1: Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. You can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get access to lots of exclusive series, behind the scenes stuff and extended episodes of Book Shambles each week. The first episode of our new uh, series, that will be going out fortnightly, a book you might not know that is out for Patreons now. First episode. Robin is talking about The Journal of a Disappointed Man with Tom Shakespeare, so check that out if you haven't already. On today's episode, Robin and Josie are talking to someone that has been on Tips for Existence, which is one of our Patreon shows, and also he is going to be joining us at Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place in December. Check out the Shambles website for tickets and details for that. And our guest is Professor Anil Seth, And we're going to be talking about his new book, Being You, which is out now. And so let's get straight to that conversation now. Here is Robin and Josie and Anil.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, How are you, Josie? You've just finished the Edinburgh Festival.
2: Yes, I have. I'm good. I'm good. I can't can't complain. I really, really loved gigging again. It made me feel really uh, vital and... And like, I have a skill that I've practiced for a long time that I could use and that was good yeah it was nice how are you heard Where people are you?
0: really enjoyed it I've heard this kind of thing that because there were so few shows everything was selling out there was still just enough there was very much like a kind of creative vibe as well it was like that kind of I'm back here to remember how I do this and it means that you know normally a show that you might have spent a year working on instead you're almost doing it from a kind of you know a standing start Mm. And, I, and I think I've really got a sense that people were tremendously excited to be out there yeah. and just, you know, and developing ideas. Um, anyway, we are joined by uh, a, a neuroscientist that I've spoken to many times before. And uh, it is always a joy. And he has a new book out. And we, I suppose in some ways, actually, and it's Anil Seth, it's, it's kind of your first like big book, isn't it? Your, your, your first kind of a real sense of, of all of your work coming together for a, a, a broad lay audience.
3: That's right, yeah. For better or worse, it's basically my, my opportunity to set out what I've been thinking about for the last 20 years. It's, it's, yeah, it's my own book, and, and, and it's been a great, it's taken four or five years to write, but I'm actually, I'm super happy, mainly with the fact that I've got it done. I didn't think that would actually ever happen.
0: And we should mention as well if anyone wants to know a little bit more about it before they go out and buy it go and look at Guy Vince reviewed it for uh, The Guardian the week that at least we're recording this uh, in, uh, in in late August and uh, it was book of the week and absolutely adored it and and it's, got, it's a book about consciousness so we should start with something that you do mention it's one of the great quotes about consciousness from Stuart Sutherland uh, who said consciousness is a fascinating but elusive phenomenon it is impossible to specify what it is what it does or why it evolved nothing worth reading has been written on it now, oh. this puts you under a lot of pressure doesn't it really? Uh... It does he did, he did say that in
3: 1989 so there have been a few other things that are worth reading that have come out in the 21 or 22 years since then but yeah it reflected I think this, this feeling back then that was just before I was starting my undergraduate degree that consciousness was still this this completely resistant intransigent mystery. And you you could talk about it from various philosophical perspectives. You could try to say something about what happens in the brain, but really there was the suspicion that the mystery has just remained intact and that all this was speculation around the edges and from from sales point of view, uh, rather pointless. I think that's just not right.
2: Is that what drew you to it initially? Like it was a kind of last frontier of discovery? in that way
3: no I didn't not at all really it wasn't the sort of like hey the rest of science is super easy let's just go for the really hard thing that remains the Everest of science no I think it was it was just a continuation of the sorts of questions that I had and I think many of us had I don't know about about uh, you two Robin I think you have we've talked about this before as a kid when you're a kid you just ask these things of yourself Mm. who am Mm. I what happened before I was born? What happens after I die? What does it mean to be me? What's what's this consciousness? What, what is this experience thing all about? And free will, where does that come from? Is it real? Th- these are questions that I think are common to many of us at, at various points in our lives. And for me, it was just a, a continuation of that interest. And I think I was really fortunate to, to work at a time when consciousness became again a legitimate thing to study in the in the sciences.
0: I I wanted to ask just about we I I want to go through lots of terminology, and I hope you don't mind at some point. But first of all, in terms of the definition now of what you would be comfortable to define as consciousness, as in a level of of self awareness, as in what we would consider to be the human understanding of, of, of our own consciousness.
3: I rather think there's a more basic definition of consciousness even than that. It's often confused or conflated, mixed up a bit with self-awareness. So we, we humans, we have conscious experiences, and we also know we know that we have these experiences. We can reflect on them and talk about them. I'm aware that I'm an ill set and that I have memories, and right now I'm listening to your voices, and I know that that's happening. But I think consciousness is really, really just the presence of any subjective experience whatsoever. There's another philosopher who I think says it the best. It sounds a bit circular, but Thomas Nagel says, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. There is something it is like for that organism. And what he's getting at is that there's something it's like to be me, to be you. There's probably something it's like to be a bat or a monkey maybe a fly who knows but there's probably nothing it's like to be a table a chair or a laptop computer there's nothing going on for that system there's no inner life whatsoever Mm. everything else is built on top of that so we humans we have conscious experiences there is experience going on but then it gets elaborated in all these relatively species specific and distinctive ways about what it is to be specifically human having memories reflective selves and all that
0: see that made, because this brings me and I know I've rung you about this in the past because it's one of the things that I get most confused about which I love is the
3: that, idea that you do
2: this by the way that you're like I've got all these sci- scientists I'm going to keep them on call uh, so that
3: it does it. happen it does happen oh,
0: An- 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 Anil knows this It's it, any scientist that knows me knows that it is I, I do no preamble I never say how are you because I think I'll find out if it turns out Anil's not well uh, he'll bring that up at some point I don't need to go into that I just need to go Anil I've just been reading this paper thing and i don't understand it at all right and there's something about the way that neurons fire and i think it's probably rubbish and you'll either go yeah there is some debate that this is actually rubbish or no you'll just never understand it due to the equations that are involved but i can give you a rough summary that's um, so useful but no i it, it, it's that idea of panpsychism because you talk about the fact there is nothing we don't believe there's anything it is like to be uh, a laptop a table a chair and then I get very lost when I read about this idea that there is a kind of level of consciousness in everything, and I maybe just misunderstand. But it, I get very caught up in a kind of what I see as a semantic quandary, which doesn't seem to lead to any great understanding. So just because you mentioned chairs and tables, what is panpsychism, or what do you think it is? Because in, in the, in the, it's being written about quite a lot at
3: the moment. It has. Panpsychism seems to be having a day in the sun, at least a little bit. It is the idea that consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous to some degree in everything. It's not, that table, it's not that the table itself is conscious necessarily, but it's made out of things that are conscious. Panpsychism is one attempt to address this you know, the, the fundamental big mystery about how does consciousness fit into our overall basic picture of the universe. It seems quite hard to do it. So one alternative is to say, well, It's just built in from the bottom up. It's there from the very beginning. It's as fundamental as mass, as energy. It is, in fact, the intrinsic essence of everything. This is not, I mean, it's kind of a crazy idea, but that's not its main problem. The main problem with panpsychism, for me anyway, is that it doesn't explain anything. It's not testable and it doesn't lead to any testable predictions. So just saying that consciousness is to some degree in everything and everywhere, doesn't explain anything about why our consciousness is the way it is, for instance, why we lose it when we take general anesthesia, why my experiences of being me or of seeing, uh, looking out the window and seeing the car across the road or whatever it is, doesn't explain any of the things that I might want to understand uh, about consciousness, but it's a coherent philosophical, position, it's appealing in some ways, because it's got to me this kind of magical thinking, uh, feeling about it. And it's, it's, you know, there's something there's something else in the universe, there's some other fundamental stuff uh, out there that is this this intrinsic nature of of consciousness. So I can sort of see the appeal, but it just doesn't lose me, it doesn't do any useful work when we're trying to actually understand how conscious experiences play out in real brains and then organisms that we're familiar with.
2: Yeah. That makes sense to me because you're going sure that's it. And it's like, great. You've said that there we are.
3: And it's not good. I, th- giving I think anything. it's, I think it's useful. I, I'm glad the position exists because to have some of these alternatives out there, especially in philosophy, it stops you making assumptions about and taking things for granted. So there's you know, one extreme. You've got panpsychism. Consciousness is out there. Some somehow everywhere and in everything. And then you have other philosophical positions that try to say that actually consciousness doesn't exist at all. Or we're just massively mistaken about thinking there's a a real problem here in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I don't think either of these are actually the case or certainly not the most useful way to address the problem of consciousness. But it's really helpful to have a multiplicity of different perspectives to, to just stop to ensure against falling into false and easy assumptions about what's going on.
0: Mm. What What do you think the 25-year-old version of you would find most surprising reading your book now? Because as you said, there's been a lot of new understanding and new questions generated in in, in the last couple of decades.
3: I think the 25-year-old me, which is a worryingly long time ago, uh, <clears throat> would, would A, be very surprised that actually managed to do it and write a thing um but would also be surprised about how closely 48 year old me ties consciousness to life i think earlier in my career i was had this sort of quite common assumption that consciousness was some form of information processing and it's very common way to speak about the brain so if it's some kind of computer and it processes information, and it's running. Mind is some sort of mindware that's running on the wetware of the brain, (laughs) and if you figure out what that is, then you understand consciousness. Mm -hmm. And now I've come to think that this distinction between wetware and mindware is not like the distinction between hardware and software in a computer. Now, that's a very sharp distinction. That's the point of computers. They're basically uh, the, the technical term will be substrate independent. It doesn't matter. I mean, we make computers out of silicon chips, but you could make them out of tin cans if you wire them up in the right way. Uh, it's a it's a process that doesn't depend on the physical material. Um, but it's not so clear that the same applies to the brain. There's no sharp distinction. As soon as you have activity in the brain, its structure changes. It's not clear where the mindware stops and the wetware stance and on top of that understanding what shapes our conscious experiences has always for me now come back to life I think we experience the world and the self with through and because of our living bodies And that's the central theme in the book and, and that's not something I was thinking 15 years ago
0: well done by the way, by making it 15 years ago that means you've now moved your age down to 40 which when you've got a successful yeah. book playing your age down is a really good yes. idea, that's why 29 year old Josie and 36 year old me have done so well with our podcasts um, the, uh, but it's, um,
2: it's such an interesting thing because I feel like even as a young person like when you first approach philosophy you go oh yes the brain, that little thing that's sat on its own, that's nothing to do with the body and, and the idea of actually sort of being willing to be more integrated in how you approach it just feels so clear, but it's just so funny that for years and years, people were like, the only bit that matters is this section of the brain, whereas this is happening, you know, not thinking of you as the the full being.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's sort of the idea that the body is just something that moves brains from meeting to meeting and is otherwise irrelevant. And that's just, there's a lot of, I I was lucky, I think my PhD especially, there's a lot of intellectual tradition at thinking more richly about the role of embodiment and the brain is embodied and the body is embedded in a, in a rich environment. Uh, and that, you know, back to psychologists like James Gibson, that's been very, very influential in thinking about perception the idea that we perceive things not as they are, but in terms of their affordances for behavior. When I, my visual experience of a cup, has to do with its pick ability and drinkability from not just what it is in the world mm. but I think that the thing that wasn't quite so prominent in that way of thinking and that I've been thinking much more about in the last 23 years I've worked it out now not 15 <laughs> years is the inside of the body not just that the body is an object that interacts with the world but that the body is this flesh and blood machine that the brain needs to keep alive. That's fundamentally what brains are for. They're for keeping the body going. And a lot of what the brain senses comes from the inside of the body. And a lot of what the brain does is control and regulation of the body. And I think that's where consciousness and especially the very basic levels of experiences of being a self, what it is to be you, I believe, bottoms out in the brain's perception of how well it's doing at keeping the body alive, and everything else comes from that. That's why I think even our visual experiences of the world around us are in some sense subtly inflected by their relevance for how well we are doing at this basic job of persisting over time and not dying
2: that's so interesting because like again like thinking about philosophy so little of it would have thought about thought in that context it would have all been kind of like how do we just ignore that that, that's oh sorry I'm not expressing it very well it's so interesting it's it feels very um you know what I'm saying but it
0: is but that's an interesting thing that you're saying because I think this is what I find intriguing and when I do read a, a book this is as well written as yours, Anna, as well, which is the ability for us to turn the experience in our brain and in our mind into words. Mm. That when you actually start doing that, you realize does this, there is this gap between going oh god even taking my direct experience from my mind <laughs> it becomes a <laughs> metaphor by the time i've started typing it out and yeah. and that seems to me to be one of the the, the big problems of us taking what is inside and, and and exposing it to the world and giving it some kind of sense
3: i think that's absolutely right there is this massive problem in researching consciousness which is getting the data I mean, it's one thing to look in the brain and see what's going on that's hard enough but the bigger challenge is is relating that to the contents of conscious experiences you can't put a conscious experience on a table and look at it it's intrinsically by its intrinsic nature it's subjective and private Uh, it's not something shareable now some people say that this is why a science of consciousness is hopeless you can't be objective about it in the same way that you can be ultimately objective about other things I have a little bit of sympathy with that, but I don't think it means that the science of consciousness is impossible. It just means the data are harder to get, and there are, there are caveats, there are limitations to getting that data. But a whole other branch of, of philosophy that is relevant here is phenomenology. So in thinking about consciousness, you've got, on one hand, you've got analytic philosophy, which will try to Clarify what we mean when we make claims about the relationship between consciousness and the brain. Is it panpsychism? Is it materialism, where we think of consciousness as basically a property of other stuff, uh, or some other ism, some other uh, some other position that's on the menu from metaphysics? But then there's also phenomenology, which is exactly facing up to this challenge, Robin, and saying, how do we get at? Conscious experiences how do we describe them how do we know what they are what is a visual experience really like if i say oh yeah I, I have an experience of seeing an object in front of me what does that what does that really mean and what would constitute a good explanation of that kind of experience so we've done some experiments in, in my group on this condition called synesthesia and synesthesia oh, nice. I, th- I don't know if you you, you, you know about this
2: it's the mixing of the senses. It's, yeah, it's
3: sort of this mix. It, 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 that's where it starts, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's when you have additional conscious experiences. So a, a typical, one of the more common variations of, of synesthesia is graphene colour synesthesia. So here, people who see printed text, maybe in black letters, whether it's on a screen or on a, on a piece of white paper, will also have colour experiences. And these colour experiences will be be very specific and stable. So uh, the letter B might always be purple or green or even blue. Uh, And it will always be exactly the same shade of that colour. And so naively, you might think that the experiential world in synesthesia is that, ah, these people see coloured letters when the rest of us don't. But it isn't like that at all. It's not that the letter just suddenly adopts a different colour. It's that the letter is experienced as being the colour it is, black, let's say, but there's this additional colour experience going on somewhere, somehow. And trying to get a handle on that is surprisingly difficult. So we did these studies which involved um, my poor PhD student doing it. I I still feel sorry um, that they had to do nine hours of interviews with synesthetes these so-called second-person interviews where you you try and just get deeper and deeper into a description of what their experience is like without suggesting them, without leading them on uh, to implicit assumptions that you might have. And then you end up with a really rich set of data about, in this case, the experience of synesthesia. And you find out things like the experience of a synesthetic colour is usually not confused with the experience of the color in the world. People don't experience these colors as really existing in the same way that when I look at this mug on, on my table, it really seems to be yellow. And so there's, a, there's something to explain there, And then we can start thinking about, okay, so what's happening in the brain that explains that, that difference? And that's where I think progress gets made. And the important thing here, just to roll it back a bit, is It's not just finding out what's happening in the brain, we need to get more sophisticated too about describing what experience is like so we know what it is we're trying to explain it's not just one big scary mystery of how consciousness happens, we want to explain the nature of experience too.
0: I love that. I think it's it, it's probably in the book, "The Man Who Tasted Shapes" or something like that. But that there's a, there were a whole family, all of whom had synesthesia, and they, someone would walk in and introduce themselves, and they go, "Oh, your name's Yellow and Crumbly." <laughs> I just it's a really beautiful. But thing. I really
2: love that. Those I, I'd never thought that that is actually a higher state of consciousness, like that. They're like super beings <laughs> moving towards the future. That's exciting to me. <laughs> I know I'm I'm simplifying. Yeah, it's, it's
3: fascinating though, and I think I think the thing that's even more interesting to me is that, I mean, you have synesthesia we, we've recognized now because once you know it exists, it's really quite surprising and it's quite dramatically different from the way non-synesthetes encounter the world. Mm. But I'm increasingly thinking that, that we all experience the world differently and we underestimate the diversity of our inner universes because in a sense, it all gets funneled through, through language. And if I say the cup is red, or yellow then you know you'll associate that with your own experience of red or yellow even though that experience might actually be different to mine. My-
0: See, that's it. It's, it's something that I think probably Josie and I have both experienced in terms of as, as comics, we are in quite a rare place, especially as both of us aren't kind of. Uh, it might come as a shock to anyone listening to this, but we're not character acts. Uh, yeah. It really is a, that you will stand on stage sometimes and an idea will come to you, and it might be quite a flippant idea, you think, but you express it at that time. And then you find five people want to come up to you at the bar afterwards and talk to you about it because you've suddenly touched on something that they thought was only them and that they were Mm. so fearful of because they thought, well, I'm just, I was doing, I wrote a poem on the way down to the Beautiful Days Festival and I thought, I want to do it tonight. And I, you know, it was about lots of different things and about anxiety as fuel and stuff. And then someone came up to me in tears afterwards and went, that was, I just had this diagnosis of this thing and that was it. And this is what and that's what I find I'm very interested in what you're saying. This idea that we uh panel beat ourselves into a certain shape, into what we think the world is expecting us to be. And for some people there is a greater disparity than others in terms of what they are in the world and what they are in their mind. And it and it seems to me I certainly see that younger people now seem to have a greater vocabulary for being able to share this sense that you don't have to be, you know, these the, the singular things.
3: Yeah, I think we're all used to this idea of, sort of social echo chambers, right? You know, we, we follow different social media feeds, we watch different TV, and so we we can therefore end up forming different beliefs about the world. I think the same might be true. This is this is speculation. It's not something done experiments on i'm not aware if other people have but there might be something similar going on at a much lower level the level of perception We might have perceptual echo chambers as well as social echo chambers because it's not just that we're all we're not even faced with the same world we all sample the world differently we all see different aspects of what's actually out there anyway so it's this it's this uh cycle where depending on what we perceive we might sample different data or, or encounter different data and then that shapes what we end up perceiving even more. And in exactly the same way that if we start believing certain things, we might start following different Twitter accounts, different Facebook accounts, and those will bootstrap our beliefs even further in a particular direction. So I, I, I think it's an open question. and It's something that I'm very, I'm actually hoping to look at next year is understanding much more about perceptual diversity this this these differences that are a little bit under the hood that don't manifest at the extremes of neurodiversity but that might to some extent characterize all of us all of the time
2: well that
0: that I was just going to ask about you know in the book you deal with kind of the search for the thermometer of consciousness the the, the tool that can measure um, and and That is, I I remember talking a, a while ago to a couple of neuroscientists who said when they were first studying neuroscience, they suddenly had this moment of going, oh, we always talk about human consciousness, but how do we know every human has the same level of consciousness? You know, so, some some people really are able to kind of switch off for a while and kind of glide through the mm. world and other people have no way of, of, of in any way to, you know, and, and it does seem that there is a disparity, not that one is better than the other either, that there are, and, and that to me seems a really fascinating thing in trying to find out that not different species, but different human beings, even their contact with the world and the level of contact is is different. And that's definitely going to change the picture that you have of the world from a subjective point of view.
3: It is. This is something I write about a bit. It's part one of the sections of the book is all about conscious level, which is very broadly how conscious are you on a scale. And it it does raise this, this big behind the scenes question. Is consciousness something like heat? Is it something that fundamentally will be reduced and explained in terms of something else? Heat was mysterious at one point, what is heat? It's something that flows in and out of objects, but now, no, we know it's it's the mean velocity of molecules in a substance. It's the mean molecular kinetic energy. And that is what heat is, it's identical to that. And it makes sense to talk about it on a single scale. And we can talk about absolute zero and the temperature of the sun and all these things. Mm. I'm not so sure consciousness is gonna turn out this way. I think it's gonna turn out more like life, something that's not on a single scale, you might say some things are, are some things more alive than others. In some sense, yes, uh, an organism, a person, is more alive than a virus. But is uh, a person, a human, more alive than than a dolphin? It's, it's hard to say. It's just alive in a different way. Yeah. So there's resist- more to it. Yeah, it's it's more it's multi-dimensional, and I think yes, there there's um there's a utility to try to see how far we can get with with the temperature and heat analogy. Because being able to detect consciousness uh, is is still a a major advantage and find out and put some kind of number to it. But I think that it's worth bearing in mind that it's probably not going to turn out like that in the round, that it is this this multifarious thing that expresses along different dimensions in, in different ways. And there are some ways in which Other animals or even uh, human infants might be more conscious than adult humans and in some ways less and -hmm. trying to figure out what these useful dimensions are. Is is one of the challenges Like we did this study a few years ago with a sort of candidate consciousness meter it's a measure of the the complexity of brain dynamics basically how random brain dynamics are. Um, And we've done some previous studies showing that this measure goes down when people lose consciousness when they fall asleep or when they go under general anesthesia things like that so it's almost like okay it goes down when people lose consciousness it's a kind of measure of consciousness but then we looked at what happens when we analyze the brain dynamics of people in the psychedelic state under lsd or psilocybin or low doses of ketamine and it goes up people's brains become more diverse in their activity in the psychedelic state than in the baseline wakeful state and we've not seen this before every other manipulation this this measure had gone down so the tempting thing to say is like oh wow science finally finds evidence that psychedelics is a higher state of consciousness and various media things wrote it up that way but it's not like that it's more diverse but it's not that there's a single scale and that the psychedelic state is a higher state of consciousness in this sort of quantitative way no it's different and this this particular measure of diversity or complexity is one way of understanding the difference
2: yeah it's it's much more exciting to think of it in terms of the sheer richness and the sheer number of ways that it will need to be measured, I think. Like, it would be so disappointing if you were like, no, it's just, you know, yeah. Like with, like with heat, like that would be such a disappointment. And it's so interesting because you can think about, I can definitely think about how I've imagined consciousness throughout my life. And, and you can sort of see it like that you think of it in terms of kind of speed or, Uh, richness or something like that. But then I, um, I remember when I first read about trees establishing networks with other trees and trees and plants interacting with one another in order to kind of protect one another and thinking like but of course that needs to be part of it as well like how we understand what it is to be alive and what it is to sort of be here. I'm just waffling. It's just yeah, nice no, to hear actually, all these the,
3: things. The thing about I've got, I've got... I've, no, I, I don't think... I still think you need a nervous system to be conscious. So I, I'm not... I'm just not convinced that trees are conscious. But I having just said that... I don't
2: know what's going on. I know, <laughs> I know, I know.
3: It's, <laughs> but What has changed is having read that stuff too. And it is amazing about how they exchange nutrients and sort of... Yeah, you know, all the, and all the smells things.
2: and the chemicals.
3: Yeah, but what it did to me is, is I'd always just thought of a tree as mainly the stuff above the surface. You know, it's the yeah. trunk and the leaves. But now... I walk through a wood or a fr- no, that's just, that's, that's, that's just the stuff that gets, um, carbon dioxide out of the sky. The real action is underground. And I, I love that new way of, of thinking about what's happening with trees.
2: Oh, but I'm sorry, because I was like convinced. I was like, well, trees are conscious this is so <laughs> stupid now. I was like, but that that's part of it. So I'm sorry.
3: I no, don't you know, might, you know. might be right. You might be right. But, but I just, I, I, <laughs> who knows, I don't I'll know. be shocked I still if I think worse. you need a nervous system to be conscious.
0: We, we've got the clip now of Anil for the opening of our remake of Day of the Triffids. I don't <laughs> believe the trees are conscious. Cut to <laughs> the trees taking over the world. So that, um, What was
2: fun was that with I was like, I used to have a more basic understanding of the conscious of, of consciousness. Now I feel I've developed. No, no, it's still wrong. I've just brought something into it that isn't part of it. <laughs> but i (laughs) think i think
0: that's really interesting though that bit of i've just been reading merlin sheldrake's uh book you know about about the fungus and and that sense of where we go it's not consciousness as we might define it but the interaction between so many living things and the complexity of it means that it doesn't remove its fascination because the trees are going oh hang on a minute i'm just going to move my root over there it doesn't oh bloody hell i've got these birds in my branches again there's shit everywhere you know it doesn't matter that it's not that level i still think that that complexity is fascinating enough Mm. and and working out how what appears to be a thinking system because some of those choices it's like the slime mold stuff and all of these things yeah, it does. It, it feels yeah. like that. And therefore, it, it still makes things, the, the vibrancy and the I, sense of I'm connection. Very much here traces. as
2: an everyman figure, very much here as a lay person. And I'm very glad to make mistakes publicly. Um. It's um yeah that's interesting. Sorry, I've have led us off away. You haven't from
0: at all. I the Wood Wide Web. I love all that stuff about the Wood yes, Wide the Wood Wide Web. I, feel, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I wanted to ask you. I, I hope it's all right, Anna. Just to I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own personal experience with your mind and how also that has affected the way that you've written and the way that you've researched. Now I I know that when you came back, you you were based in the west coast of America for a while. Um, when you came back from there, you had a difficult time, and you had—I I don't know if you want to call it kind of a, a, a depressive period or how you would define it—but you, you you went through um, a period uh, where your your mental health was—you were kind of battling with it. Um, is it okay to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, it is. I think
3: it's—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm very happy to it, and I yeah, I would call it depression, and that's what it seemed to be. That's what my GP, my doctor, concluded as well. That's that's what it felt like, and and I resonate with other people's descriptions of that state it, it was a depressive state
0: and and so as someone who is is studying the mind the whole I, I i presume that probably not when you're right in the middle of it but when you're out of it did you find that that changed to some extent perhaps where you wanted to investigate or some of your possible understandings of the human mind
3: i think a bit of both i think it's On a practical level, it made me fascinated by the potential of studying consciousness for its benefits for psychiatric interventions, psychiatric conditions and mental illnesses, whether it's depression, PTSD, or really severe anxiety. These are manifesting in in conscious experiences. Sometimes they're also manifest in, in behavior. But fundamentally we call it a mental illness, a mental illness because of how it affects our experience of the world, schizophrenia the same. And so it, it just seems in a sense obvious that if we want to understand at the level of, real level of detail, what's going on in mental illnesses, well, we have to understand the brain basis of different kinds of experience. It's not just all about behavior and medically you can think of this as trying to go from something like a uh, treating the symptoms to treating the mechanisms going from something like a painkiller to an antibiotic how do we get in and figure out what's really going on Um, and then that's a necessary but not sufficient step to coming up with more specific treatments the condition that i've got most interested in actually is is psychosis in this regard because it's probably closest to one that that a study of consciousness is, is shedding light on when people have psychosis they they hallucinate you know, they'll experience things that other people don't experience and why is that how does that happen we can begin to get a handle on that by understanding how it might be a disruption of the normal process of perception which which in the way I've been thinking and how I write in the book, it's this process of controlled hallucination, where the brain is continuously estimating what's out there in the world, but its estimations are guided very closely by what's really out there. But if you just change that balance a little bit, so the brain's best guesses lose their grip on sensory signals from the world, then you can then you have a mechanism by which hallucinations can begin to appear, and that's you know, that's. For me, it's a fascinating window onto what might be at the heart of something like schizophrenia. It's a long way to go from there to a treatment, but it's definitely, I think, part of the story. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, how did it affect personally? I think it does affect me personally as well. Maybe in the same way that something like meditation is often thought of as helpful for things like depression. One of the things about depression, certainly in my experience, is that you end up in these circles of rumination where you take how you're thinking and how you're perceiving the world to be really how it is, which then justifies your way of thinking and perceiving. And you end up in these vicious circles.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: one of the, the ways to, to, to get around that or to recover is to try and introduce a bit of space between how you feel, what you're thinking, what you're perceiving and what you believe is really going on. meditation trains you to do that by just paying attention to what's happening in your mind without being caught up in it. And studying consciousness, I think, can do the same thing in a different way. It allows you to realize that what you're experiencing, whether it's an emotion, uh, whether it's a particular pattern of thought, whether it's a perception of the outside world, but especially an emotion, If you understand that as as not necessarily exactly how things are and are always going to be, but a perceptual construction of a particular kind. I do think it it, it doesn't just dissolve that negative experience and make everything fine. Not at all. Nothing is really you can take some diazepam or something to try and do that. But what it does do is um, change your relationship to the experiences that you are having and that i think can be can be very useful over time so i don't know i don't have a different version of me who didn't do this for a living to compare with but i i do think that i i can tell myself a convincing story about how understanding consciousness has indeed helped me at a personal level with dealing with these episodes and you know, that they were in the past fortunately and, and I, it's a it's not a nice thing to go through to put it mildly um mm. but it does pass.
0: Oh, Brilliant, thank yeah. you. That is, we didn't do any of the terminology the people are going to have to but buy I the book get to find to out ask what... You
2: about what you've been reading. Oh, you can oh, do that. Big thing,
3: but... Oh no, ask me that because I, 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 I've been well. I'd love to. because I had just finished, and one of the great things I think about finishing a book is I now feel suddenly liberated to start yes. reading books again. I just yeah. didn't think I. I didn't give myself the license to do it when I was still thinking. Oh damn it! I've still got to finish this one. And I I just finished uh, Clara and the Sun by Katsuo Ishiguro. Now, this this is not a left field weird choice. I mean, this is going to be quite, it's a very popular book. Um, But I, I absolutely love it as I love Ishiguro's work in general. It's so delicate. It's so poignant. It's so spare and elegant. I think I said elegant twice but you know I mean it just has that quality of, of it's, it's of double legacy. elegant I mean not, not, nothing
0: elegant. is is more elegant than something that's double elegant
3: <laughs> and it's, it's this yeah. kind of literary philosophy that I think is just so wonderful so in Clara and the and I, you know, I'm not gonna spoil it for people who haven't read it but it's really an investigation about you know the, the whole premise is there's these these artificial friends um that come into people's lives machines that act as, as synthetic friends and uh, what Ishiguro explores in this book, or how I read him anyway, is not so much the question of what it would take to actually build something like this, but but what living in a world with such things does to the human experience, to the human psyche. And you know, this is this is what this is something that you know, it's beyond the realm of experiments. It's a window onto the sort the same sorts of questions about consciousness, what it means for us when we think about what. What we share our world with, the entities that we share our world with, that only literature can can explore, and, and Ishiguro just does it in such such an inspiring and, and beautiful way. I absolutely love that book. Mm,
2: that's really cool. Well, do you have anything else that you recommend?
3: What else have I been been reading? I have to say that's the that's the only novel that that I've read for for quite a long time. I'll give I give another mention of one of the other things actually in neuroscience that I've been, well, it's not in neuroscience. We mentioned in, so Carlo Rovelli's book, Helga Land.
0: Oh, it's brilliant. I really
3: love that too. And it's actually, there's been this crop of insanely good books about the foundations of quantum mechanics over the last few years. There's there's Rovelli's book. There's um, Anil Ananthaswamy's written a book Through Two Doors at Once. There's Adam Becker, I think, has written a book called What is Real. And All of a sudden, there are these beautifully different perspectives on on this fundamental mystery of quantum mechanics. I was always a bit suspicious and and steering clear of quantum stuff because sometimes people say, oh, consciousness is mysterious and, oh, quantum mechanics is mysterious. So the two things must be somehow deeply related. And I think that's a a big mistake. It's a false syllogism between two things. Um, But quantum mechanics, just in and of itself, is just super interesting it's just so perplexing to me that that our best description of the way the universe works can only admits interpretations each of which individually is completely crazy and it's just hard to judge which is the craziest but they're all crazy in particular ways and and yet one of them or perhaps none of them is the way things actually are. And I thought Ravelli's book, Helgoland, it's pretty short, concise, poetic. It's a beautiful articulation of of his own view about the foundations of quantum mechanics, which is a a relational perspective. So things exist only in the form of their interactions with other things, um, which actually Takes us right back to panpsychism in a slightly disturbing way, but let's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, so there may ultimately be some relation. But, but really, I just think Rovelli's book is a remarkable articulation of the the wonder and mystery of these fundamental levels of description of the universe.
0: Yeah, I would. I'd hugely recommend that as well. I thought it was fantastic. I'm annoyed now because I could have made a nice bit of synchronicity when you were talking about the fact there wasn't a second you to kind of when go going through experience. Of course, the first thing that came into my head was "Never Let Me Go" by Kasuo Ishiguro. And if I'd said that out loud, then we'd have created a Jungian moment of synchronicity, which some would merely call coincidence. But it doesn't matter. Um, annual your book's fantastic uh and uh, it is out now uh, oh. it's, it's 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 uh it's it's a brilliant book so i would uh, and as i said to people as well go and look at the review in in the guardian that was out uh in the last weekend of uh, of august by uh guy vince who also i highly recommend her books and uh, are you are you able to get out and about at all are you going to be going uh, have you got any book festivals uh, in at the moment
3: I have a couple, yes. So actually, it's probably already would have happened by the time this airs, but there is a book launch, an in real life book launch at the Royal Institution on uh, September the 2nd. Uh, But then I've also got some in-person events. There's the London Literature Festival, I think, um, which I will be speaking at, I believe, I think it's October the 19th, something in mid-October. And then a couple of other festivals. Oh, How the Light Gets In. I'll be up at How the Light Gets In in London too on the weekend of the eighteenth and nineteenth of September. I think that's in Hampstead Heath. It's gonna be weird. 18th the 19th? I'm I'm on the I'm on the eighteenth. Oh come um, and see that then. Oh, cool. I, that'll be fun. It looks it looks great. I've never been to How the Light Gets In, but i I keep I almost went several times. So I'm really looking forward to it this time.
0: Oh, I, I, I did it in hay a few times but once I walked into a yurt and uh, uh, Toby Young was there so I walked ah, into a yurt that was, That's uh, not the
2: light getting yeah, in Yeah,
0: That was one of those very brief yurt moments No, he was there to bring the darkness so he could see the light around him <laughs> It was fine um, uh, Thank you so much for joining us and uh, Josie, what are you up to?
2: Well, I have about one more week of gigs uh, One more week of gigs next week I'm doing the end of the road festival and um then i have a few little bits and bobs that i'm recording uh, audio wise uh, and i'm finishing my short stories and then i'm just gonna be pregnant and have a baby at the end of november that's my big plans
0: Isn't it nice just to relax and have a baby?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Listen, the very relaxing art of being nine months pregnant and then having a newborn, two of the most relaxed states of being you can have. Just a real an absolute snooze fest is how I describe
0: it. Well, thank you very much. uh, And thanks, everyone, for joining us. And thank you to everyone who uh, supports us via uh, Patreon as well. That's patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you don't support us and you would like to, when you get longer episodes uh, I'm going to be out and about I'm off on tour with uh, Brian Coxton warm-up dates for what is now a tour that won't be happening for about a year so we're going to get really warmed up and then we're going to get very very cold all over again um, and uh, I've also got my book The Importance of Being Interested I'm doing 100 bookshops in October, November and uh, December uh, across the UK so if anyone uh, I'm starting off around Wigtown uh, the Larm Weekend and then I'm at Manchester and Tring and Chorleywood Wait, Show Glasgow, together. with yes. with Josie at Mount Florida Books in Glasgow as well. So um, I hope you'll be able to join uh, some of us for some of those things. Um, and have a lovely week. Thanks very much for listening, and thank you to our producer Trent Burton. Bye bye.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Remember to like, rate, subscribe, review, five stars, all that jazz on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the URL to go and subscribe and support the show and get lots of extra good stuff as well. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. Take care.
0: Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.